Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Turn to Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 17. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, raising the son of Syria and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, and you and Shear Jezub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Raisin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is raisin. And with 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will go. The Lord himself would give you a sign. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy Advent to you. I've worn my Advent tie today. Maybe you wore your Advent tie as well. But we're kicking off Advent today. But before we get into Advent, I have to address a problem. We've got a bit of a problem. And uh, maybe you've picked up on this problem. So a couple years ago, probably two, three years ago, Pastor Todd, uh, as we were reading scripture like we just did, he instituted a response to scripture reading. And so at the end of scripture reading, the person who read scripture would say, um, this is God's word, and then we would say, amen. But over time, what's happened is that our scripture readers don't always say this is God's word. Sometimes they say the more traditional, the word of the Lord. Now, if you've grown up in any kind of tradition that has a response to scripture reading, you know that if the reader says the word of the Lord, you say, See, some confusion right here, you know. <laughs> the traditional historic response is, thanks be to God. But we've kind of like gone back and forth, and we've been kind of confused. And so you're not like, we don't really know what to say. So the scripture reader says, this is the word of the Lord. And you're like, is that like, this is God's word? Or is that more like the word of the Lord? And then you're like, thanks be to amen, because you don't really know what you're supposed to say. So here's what we're going to do. We've had all of our scripture readers the last month or so zero in on the word of the Lord. And then your response is, thanks be to God. Now, if you're like, I'm a diehard, I'm going to just say amen, you can say amen, and I will, no one will judge you. But in unison, as much as possible, we're going, to, we're going to collect around the more traditional responses of, this is God's word, or the word of the Lord. I'm sorry, the word of the Lord, <laughs> thanks be to God. Man, strike that from the film. We don't want that. Okay, so uh, next week, we'll do our best to have that down. All right, so Advent begins today. Uh, and Advent, of course, as we were talking about with the kids, this is the season where we anticipate uh, the long-awaited and long-expected Jesus. And as a church, the church global, we follow along through Advent in the footsteps of God's people, anticipating the birth of Jesus. So this year in Advent, what we're going to be doing as we follow along with God's people is tracking through Matthew's account of uh, the birth of Christ in Matthew's chapter 1 and 2, and then a little bit into chapter 3. And we're going to see, particularly though, how Matthew connects the birth of Jesus and the events surrounding Jesus' birth with the Old Testament prophecies that speak of the coming of Messiah. So we're going to be looking at five prophetic words passages from the Old Testament prophets that Matthew highlights in his accounting of Jesus' birth. We're not going to look so much at Matthew 
and how he talks about Jesus' birth, as much as we're going to use Matthew as a guide to go back and look at the Old Testament passages that he references. All right, so we're going to look at the Old Testament passages, then we're going to look at how Matthew uses them, and then we're going to apply that to Jesus and our lives today. So that's going to be uh, the series that we'll be moving through here in Advent, and each week we'll take another of the passages uh, that Matthew uh, has highlighted. He actually has five, so it works out very well because we have four weeks and then we have Christmas Eve, so it's perfect. So Matthew was thinking of us when he put this uh, plan together. But let me say a quick word before we jump into today's sermon about how Old Testament prophecy, specifically as it relates to Jesus, works. Because this is going to have application for today's sermon, but then also it's going to have application uh, for the subsequent sermons that come throughout this series. There are two basic ways that Old Testament prophecies prophesy or point towards Jesus. The first is through direct prophecy. And this is when the prophet gives a prophecy that is specifically understood in that time to be referencing the coming of the Messiah, and it's saying things about what the Messiah will be like. So uh, there's prophecies given that the Messiah will one day come from the tribe of Judah at the end of Genesis, or in 2 Samuel 7, that the, that, uh, the prophet... Uh, the uh, the prophecy is given that the Messiah will come from the tribe of David, or the son of David, rather. He will be a descendant of David. He will sit upon David's throne. Uh, there's prophecy given later in Isaiah that the Messiah will die in atoning uh, and sacrificial death that will remove the sins of his people. And then again, that the Messiah will one day be Lord of all the nations. So those prophecies, these, those direct prophecies, are speaking specifically about the coming of Messiah in their original context. Now, there's another group of prophecies, though, that we could call typological or foreshadowing prophecies. And in these prophecies, there are certain events or symbols that happen throughout redemptive history that find their ultimate meaning in Jesus' life, his actions, his death, his resurrection. So they're foreshadowings that make sense in their own day for various reasons, but find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus' life and his ministry. So the easiest way maybe to illustrate this would be uh, one of these prophecies would be the Passover lamb. Many of you, if you've been around church, you understand uh, the Passover lamb when the Israelites were captive in the land of Egypt. God sent Moses to deliver them out of the land of Egypt into the land of promise. And uh, God himself came with severe judgments upon the land, but he protected the people, his own people, from the wrath that he was bringing upon the land. They hid, as it were, under the blood of a Passover lamb. And so God's judgment passed over the people that were protected by the blood of the lamb. And uh, the apostle Paul, John, and others, they point to Jesus and they say, Jesus is the true Passover lamb. He is the fulfillment of that sign, that Passover lamb. So the Passover lamb, to the Jews that were in captivity in Egypt, it had its own meaning there. But it finds its fullest meaning in the fact that Jesus is the one who is sent by God, whose blood is shed, who protects us from God's wrath, leads us out of the slavery of sin into the land of promise. So most of the prophecies that we're going to encounter in Matthew's uh, first couple chapters are going to be this 
typological or foreshadowing type prophecies. They have meaning in their own context. They, they mean something to the people of the Old Testament. But they find their truest fulfillment in the fact that they signified and were pointing towards the great sign of Jesus and his death and resurrection and his work. All right? So these are the kinds of prophecies we're going to find. It's the kind of prophecy we're going to find today in Isaiah 7. All right. So let's begin then with the most famous of all the prophecies in Advent, the first one that Matthew uh, points to in his account in Matthew chapter 1, the prophetic word that Jesus' virginal birth will be the ultimate fulfillment of what takes place in Isaiah 7.14. Now, most of us know the story of Jesus' birth. We sing songs about it, even in the broader culture. Even if you haven't grown up in church at all, you may have heard the stories of Jesus' birth. If you haven't, you've just heard it read for you, and so now you have heard of Jesus' birth. Matthew and Luke both speak of Jesus being born of a virgin, but Matthew is, his gospel is the only gospel that connects Jesus being born of a virgin back to Isaiah chapter 7. Ultimately, we're going to see that Jesus' birth is both a sign of deliverance and is itself the means of deliverance. Now, I don't know what difficulties perhaps you've brought into the service with you today, or I've been dogging at your heels, as it were, uh, over the past number of months or maybe even year. Perhaps difficulties related to friends perhaps difficulties related to family tension, whether your job or your kids, or your marriage or your kids, rather, perhaps related to your job or employment. Maybe it's a season of grief and loss that plagues you. Perhaps there's some sin that you just can't seem to shake. Perhaps there's guilt that you just can't seem to leave behind, no matter how much you try to wash your hands, you can't, as it were, get the blood off. Perhaps it's just some inner turmoil of your own psyche, anxiety, depression, despair, frustration, whatever it might be that you've brought into this service with you this morning. Perhaps that difficulty threatens to overwhelm you. Perhaps you feel at the end of your resources. Perhaps you feel tempted to look for means of deliverance that you know God would not approve. As we're going to see in the text this morning, the virgin birth of Jesus is a reminder from God that our deliverance rests ultimately in God. So we're going to look at Isaiah 7, see what it meant in the original context. We're going to see how that shapes our understanding of Matthew, and then apply that into our lives today. So Isaiah 7, let's begin. A prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14, about the virgin being with child and bearing a son, Emmanuel, is originally given to a Jewish king named Ahaz. Now, to understand the prophecy in Isaiah 7, you need to know a little bit about Jewish history. So let me bring you up to speed here. For those who don't know, Israel has been divided in two because of a civil war. 
So the northern kingdom broke away from the southern kingdom. So now we have two Jewish kingdoms. And the northern kingdom has kind of gone, gone their own way. They're referred to here in our passage and throughout the Old Testament as Ephraim or Israel. So if you see Ephraim or Israel, it's referring to the northern kingdoms that have broken away, or the northern kingdom that has broken away from the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is referred to as Judah throughout the Old Testament and here in this passage. Now, Judah remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty. And Jerusalem is in Judah. The center of, Jew of Jewish worship is in Judah. So it's still kind of the, the homeland, as it were, of the Jewish people. But the, the northern 10 tribes have been torn asunder through civil war. And, they're, and these two tribes are in a kind of on-again, off-again relationship with each other. They're like brothers, right? They, sometimes they're allies. Sometimes they're fighting. Sometimes they're not talking to each other at all. You know, it's that sort of thing. Right now, they're in an off-again phase of their relationship, and they are at war with each other. So when we come to Isaiah 7, and we can take Isaiah 7, and to get the full historical background, we could look to 2 Chronicles 28 and also 2 Kings 16. Those are two passages you could look to to fill out a, a bigger picture of what's going on in Isaiah 7. Isaiah doesn't give us all the details, but we can kind of put these together. So piecing these three texts together, here's the picture that we get of what's going on in Isaiah 7. Syria and Ephraim, so Ephraim, uh, the northern tribes, are, is in league with a pagan nation named Syria, also to the north, and they together have made a devastating and successful assault on Judah. And this has involved a significant loss of Judah's property, its territory. So now Syria and Ephraim are preparing for a second attack. So they've already made one attack. That happened before Isaiah 7. Now they're preparing for a second attack. And this time they're hoping to topple King Ahaz altogether and to replace King Ahaz with their own vassal king, the son of Tabeel, is what they are hoping to do, right? And bring Judah under their control. So King Ahaz is terrified, and so are all of his people. So in verse 2, we can see it here. The hearts of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake in the wind. So Ahaz has already lost bad in round one of this war, and he's afraid he's going to lose altogether in round two. So the Lord sends the prophet Isaiah out to speak to King Ahaz and deliver a message of hope in the midst of this crisis. All right, so verses 4 through 9 are the message of hope that Isaiah brings to King Ahaz. And we could sum it up easily like this. It shall not stand. The plans of Ephraim, the plans of Syria, their league against you, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. They are not going to succeed. You will be preserved. But then we get to the end of verse 9. Really, we can get to the very beginning. We can look at the very beginning. The verse, what's the very first thing that Isaiah says to Ahaz in verse 4? Do you see that? Very first thing. What's he say? Be careful. He says, be careful. It's interesting. Be careful. And then he ends his uh, word of encouragement with clarifying why he said, be careful. Because look what he says at the end of verse 9. After he's told Ahaz that God is going to deliver him, he says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. 
Now, these, there's a little bit of a word play here in the Hebrew. It's a little bit tricky to translate. But the idea that Isaiah is communicating is that the only way to stand firm, to, to stay standing in the midst of this trial, is through faith in God's promise. If you don't stand by faith, you're not going to stand at all. But what other course of action might Ahaz have taken? I mean, what other options were open to him? Now we come to a bit of a plot twist, because we learn from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and then we can, we're going to see later in Isaiah 8, that Ahaz didn't want to trust in the Lord. Actually, Ahaz had someone else in mind that he was planning to trust in. He wanted to trust in the king of Assyria. Assyria was the dominant superpower in the Mesopotamian region. It was the, the, it was the, it was the rising power, and it had, it had a control over all of the area. If anyone could help Judah, Ahaz was thinking, surely it's the king of Assyria. He's already lost part of his territory to Syria and Ephraim, and he's afraid he's going to lose his entire throne. And so when Isaiah comes to him, Ahaz is contemplating paying tribute to the king of Assyria to get him to come to his aid. So Isaiah's prophecy is an encouragement to Ahaz about God's protection, but it's also a warning to him about the folly of looking for deliverance from somewhere else other than God. If you lose confidence in God, Isaiah is saying, you will not stand. Isaiah then tells Ahaz in verse 10 to ask God for a sign or a proof of God's promise. Now, Ahaz, of course, refuses to ask God for a sign. Doesn't say explicitly why he refuses. He, he quotes the Old Testament about not asking God, putting the Lord to the test. But I suspect that part of the reason he doesn't want to ask God for a sign, even though God has told him to ask him for a sign, is because he doesn't want a sign. He doesn't want to have to put his faith in God. It's just going to complicate his life. He thinks his sure, safer bet is to go with Assyria. So he refuses to ask God for a sign. Isaiah then is frustrated with him. And Isaiah says, then God himself is going to give you a sign. And now we get to 714 and the virgin birth. Isaiah tells Ahaz in 7.14 that as a sign of God's deliverance, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. The child shall be named Emmanuel, which means God's with us. This idea of naming children as signs of what's to come, we can see that in other places in the prophets. Hosea names some of his children signs about what is to come in the future. This son, Emmanuel, who shall be born, shall be a sign of God's presence and protection. Before the child is old enough to be weaned or choose right from wrong, Judah's enemies that stand against Ahaz will be destroyed. Okay, now before we continue with the story of Ahaz, I want to say a few words about this prophecy here. First, the Hebrew term Alma that's translated in 714 as virgin, most literally means or simply means young, marriageable woman. It doesn't mean virgin in the way that we in the, we'd use that term in the technical sense in the English. Hebrew has a different word for, for virgin, and that's not is what 
That's not what's used here in this passage. All right, so the history of translation on this passage is a little bit involved. I'm not going to try to explain all of it now. But most English versions translate Alma in 714 as virgin here, I think in part because they're trying to connect what happens in 714 to what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 122. And Matthew in 122 does use a technical term that means virgin. So to help us see that it's connecting the dots, that English translators uh, will change Isaiah 14 or translate Isaiah uh, 7, rather, as a reference to a virgin rather than an Alma. So when Isaiah tells Ahaz that a young woman will have a baby and that the baby will be a sign of God's presence and Israel's deliverance, the significance of this sign is not that the child's birth will be miraculous, but rather the significant of the birth is that it's a sign about how quickly the threat of Assyria and Ephraim will be cleared up. The threat of Assyria, the threat of Syria and Ephraim will be will disappear in as much time as it takes for a young woman to get pregnant, have a baby, and wean a child. So the timing, not the nature of the birth, was the point of the sign for Ahaz in the context of Isaiah 7. And indeed, as we continue reading through on into chapter 8 and following, looking particularly at 8.18, we see that the young woman that Isaiah is referencing is almost certainly his wife, making Emmanuel in Isaiah 7 the son of Isaiah. And of course, the name of the child, Emmanuel, God with us, is meant as a statement that the coming deliverance is because, is because of God not the king of Assyria. Okay, we're going to come back to this in a moment as we consider how Matthew makes use of this prophetic sign. But let's finish out the story of Ahaz and Isaiah. Isaiah can see that Ahaz is not going to stand in faith. He's not going to lean upon God. Instead, he's going to call for the pagan king of Assyria to come help him. So Isaiah goes on to give Ahaz another sign, a second sign. In chapter 8, Isaiah goes on to have a second son besides Emmanuel. This second son is also a sign. But this time, the son is a sign of judgment. The second son's name, you can see it here in 8 uh, 1, is Maher Shalala Hashbaz. Some of you are trying to figure out what to name your next son. This might be a good name to choose. I commend it to you as well because I have to practice uh, the kids' names for child dedications, and I've already practiced this one, so I'm ready to go if you want to name your kid Maher Shalala Hashbaz. It means swift to the, splendor, swift to the pl- spoil, speedy to the judgment. Swift to the, to the plunder, speedy to the judgment. Maher Shalala Hashbaz is a sign that reliance upon Assyria is going to end in swift retribution. Look what Isaiah says after announcing uh, the name of his son in verse 3 of chapter 8. I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalala Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So that sounds like good news. But then the Lord spoke to me again. 
Because this people has refused, this people now is referring to Ahaz and the people of Judah, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Ahaz goes on to call for the king of Assyria, and the king of Assyria does indeed come. And he breaks the power of Syria and Ephraim, but at what a cost. Assyria lays a heavy and crippling tribute on Judah. Listen to what happens here in the tellings of this event in 2 Chronicles. So the king of Assyria came against Ahaz and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion of the house of the Lord and the house of the kings and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. So he calls Assyria into his territory. Assyria destroys Ephraim and Syria, but also comes and lays a crippling burden upon Judah as well. One commentator puts it like this. It's like a mouse being attacked by two rats who calls the cat to come in and save it. So the cat comes in, kills the two rats, but then gobbles up the mouse as well. Isaiah has two sons, both of whom are signs. Emmanuel, the first son, is a sign of God's presence and redemption. And Maharshalal Hashbaz is a sign of God's judgment and retribution. All right, so that's what happened in Isaiah 7. Now we move on to Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew makes use of what he read in Isaiah chapter 7 and connects it to Jesus. When we open up the pages of Matthew, we open up to an unfolding story. Really, it's the continuation of the story that we've already been reading about in Isaiah 7. The people of Israel, the people of God, moving through the travails and trials of life, looking for deliverance and salvation. And they're still looking for it in Matthew chapter 1. The hour has grown late. Help is sorely needed. And just like Ahaz, the people of God are in trouble. The powers of death and darkness are arrayed against them, arrayed against us, really, identifying with them, and have decisively won the first round. And so the people of God, our backs are against the wall. It's not going well. And what's worse, we human beings have unleashed these dark powers through our own folly and sin. And stepping away from God, his will, his ways, his life, we have victimized and harmed ourselves and opened ourselves up to the tyranny of Satan. Jesus was sent into this crisis as a sign of deliverance. He came to set us free from the crush and ruin of our own sinfulness, to break us free from the power of sin and darkness and the devil. This is what the angel means in verse 21 when he says, uh, call his name Emmanuel, uh, or he says, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
people of God needed saving. We were in distress because of our sin and the sin of the whole world. But deliverance from ruin is not often how we think about the Christmas season, especially not how our culture teaches us to think about Christmas. So much of how our culture celebrates Christmas, probably if you had to pick one word, it might be sentimental. Christmas is cozy and warm. We have candle lights, Christmas trees, and comfort food, and Yule logs. We're not even sure what a Yule log is, really, but <laughs> it seems important. And everything merry and bright and wonderful in the world. Now, I'm not against cozy things. I like cozy things just as much as the next guy. I probably like cozy things a little too much, to be honest with you. But the first Christmas isn't about God stepping in to our cozy world. The first Christmas happened because we human beings were in crisis. We were in a bad way. We were like Ahaz, terrified trees shaking in the high wind. The forces of evil, human, spiritual, demonic, perhaps even especially our own forces of evil, turned back against ourselves, are arrayed against us. We needed to be saved from our own sin and the drastic consequences of our sin. And so God has sent, in the midst of this crisis, the true and heavenly Emmanuel, not merely as a sign of deliverance, but as the embodiment of that deliverance, not merely as a sign of God's presence, but as God's actual presence in the world and our lives. And the wonder of it all, the heavenly Emmanuel is not simply born of an Alma, a young woman like Isaiah's Emmanuel, but miraculously and beyond expectation, he is born of a Parthenon, a technical virgin, the Virgin Mary. In the miraculous virgin birth, Matthew sees, he looks back to Isaiah 7, and he sees Jesus as the true Emmanuel, the deepest and truest fulfillment of Isaiah's Emmanuel. Just as Jesus is the true and fullest fulfillment of the Passover lamb, so too he is the true and fullest fulfillment of Emmanuel. And so here at Christmas, at Advent, and the birth of Jesus is manner of coming into the world, his name, Emmanuel. It is in the hope of the true Emmanuel that we as God's people stand by faith. And it's in the hope of Emmanuel that the whole world is invited to stand by faith. So don't look to your version of pagan Assyria whatever your crisis, whatever crisis you're facing in this life, in your own personal life, don't look to pagan Assyria. Don't look to Assyria to deliver you from your sins and your circumstances and your troubles at the expense of your obedience to God. Don't turn away from your faith. 
It is true for Ahaz, it is true for us, that the trials that we face, ultimately, we face them by faith, or we cannot stand in the midst of them at all. Sometimes we're led into difficult circumstances precisely so that we can turn our hope and our thoughts toward God and lean again upon the provisions of his sufficiency and deliverance through Jesus Christ. The resources of this world can address many needs, but not even the world at its best can address human needs absolutely or permanently. So do you need peace? God offers you eternal peace in Christ. Do you need forgiveness this morning? God offers you freedom and unending forgiveness in Christ, free of charge. Do you need purpose and meaning? You don't know what your life is about or where it should be going. God offers you true and eternal purpose and meaning in Christ. Do you need freedom from your sin, some besetting sin that plagues you that you haven't yet been able to shake? God offers you victory in this life in increasing measure in Christ and then total and complete victory in the life to come. Do you need healing in your marriage? or with your kids. Christ is the great reconciler. He is the one that can bring warring parties together that are uh, not at peace with each other and to make them at peace with each other. Whatever your need is that you bring into here this morning that stands, uh, that stands in your life unfulfilled at this point, know that there is no true human need, deep human need that God cannot meet through his son, Jesus Christ. Don't be an Ahaz trying to find deliverance through some other means besides how God offers us Jesus and his presence with us. Here this morning, as we gather at the table, is the sign of God's deliverance, not only the sign of God's deliverance, but Christ's presence with us is, in fact, indeed the very source of God's deliverance. Here is our Emmanuel. Here God is with us. Here Christ draws near and offers himself as both the sign of our salvation and the source of our salvation, as the sign of God's presence and the source of of God's presence. So as we take the table together as a congregation, let partaking of communion be a statement, an affirmation of your faith to trust in God, come what may. Let it be a statement that you will not run after or seek after pagan alternatives, of, alternatives for deliverance, but that you will place your hope fully in Jesus Christ. If you are not a believer this morning and you uh, reflecting upon who God is for you as we take the elements as a congregation, it's a family meal. It's, it's for those that are in the covenant 
already who have come to God in faith through Jesus Christ. If that's not you, then I encourage you to let the elements pass you by. But to take the opportunity that we have here in this moment, the quietness of this space, to reflect upon God's invitation to you. He invites you, too, into the covenant, into his family, so that Emmanuel can be Emmanuel for you. God with us can be God with you as well. So take some time to reflect as the elements are passed about that uh, invitation that is extended out to you. Let communion today be for all of us here an affirmation of the truest meaning and hope of Christmas, that God is with us, that he will be with us, and that in his time and in his own way, he will deliver us. Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus to us, that he is our Emmanuel. Thank you that he draws uh, near to us even now as we wait for him to return. Thank you that we can have our hope fixed fully on him, trusting and looking to him. God, we thank you that you have given us uh, this moment and this covenant meal uh, to celebrate the gift that we have of Jesus. God, strengthen our hearts, strengthen our faith. Uh, Give us the capacity to trust fully in you and who you are for us and to not chase after vain and false hopes of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.